0: Yeah, so starting in verse 1. So when David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floors. He inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, go, attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, here in Judah we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? And once again David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, go down to Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. So David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock. He he inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Keilah. Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Keilah. Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah, and he said, God has delivered him into my hands, for David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod. David said, Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said he will. Again, David asked, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said They will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horash in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horash and helped him to find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You shall be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them then made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horesh. The Ziphites went up to Saul at at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hekila, south of Jeshimon? Now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so and we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he is very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I will go with you. If he is in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. So they set out and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the desert of Maon, In the Arabah, south of Jeshimon, Saul and his men began the search. And when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Come quickly, the Philistines are raiding the land. Then Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet uh, the Philistines. That is why they called this place Selah. I'm not even going to try and pronounce that one. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of Engedi. Cool. So there's, yeah, there's heaps in there. Um, I'll just start us off with a prayer and then we'll, yeah, get started. Um, Heavenly Fa- Heavenly Father, I just um, thank you so much for yeah the opportunity to be looking at this chapter, Lord. Um, yeah, just continuing this awesome book that yeah gives so many lessons, Lord. I do pray we can look yeah closely at both Saul and David with the right perspective, Lord. Um, yeah, just that we can really see the warnings in Saul uh, and see his heart exposed, and you know see see David's you know heart exposed as well, Lord, and, and see his good example, Lord. I pray as we read this text where fear is so present and, you know, there's so many, so many fears around them, I pray that we can learn how to approach our fear, you know, how you want us to approach it, Lord. Um, yeah, thank you so much for this time. Uh, I love you and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. So let's get started. Um, and actually, before we do look at our text, I thought it'd be helpful to just recap. Um, is that going to work? Oh, there we go. Uh, So it's just pictures anyway, but just recap uh, Cam's sermon from last week. Um, So in the last chapter, uh, we had Saul's character massively exposed. He couldn't hide his anger anger anymore. And so he orders, uh, you know, his men to kill Ahimelech and his whole family. Uh, And we see that his need uh, to find and kill David led him to start manipulating the people around him with guilt and fear. He says things like, none of you are concerned about me, and why have you conspired against me? But as Cameron pointed out, the reality is that every effort that Saul was making to manipulate other men with fear you know, actually came from a deeper place of his own fear. Um, and Saul's deepest fear was losing control and losing the power that he had as king. Uh, and, and now we see that he'll do anything to stop David from taking that power from him. So fear was hidden underneath all of Saul's actions, influencing everything that he did just going to have to point at Jordan. Um, And now as we get into our chapter, uh, fear becomes a lot more potent for us. So, I mean, just imagine this scene here at the start. So you've got Keilah, this small city in the lowlands of Judah. Um, Really small city, and it's being invaded by a huge Philistine army. The soldiers probably be taking everything that these people have. You have men being killed, likely buildings being destroyed. You know, these people were completely helpless. Um, You know, watching while pretty much all they had was taken. The people of Keilah were petrified, crying out to David's army for help. Um, But then you have David, right? You know, fearing not only for his own life, uh, but for the lives of his men as well. You know, as they speak with David, they're afraid of the Philistines. It says in verse 3, and not to mention being afraid of Saul's army that was already chasing them, right? So David wanted to save Keilah, but if he did go, he knew that Saul would be right there waiting for him, ready to attack David, you know, with his exhausted men. So it seems like every aspect of this chapter is sort of framed by fear from the start. And it's not just Saul and fear anymore. You know, literally everyone in this story seems to have something to fear. And I think fear is an interesting thing. Um, it's something that we can use uh, and, and be used by at the same time, you know, as we saw in Saul. Um, Saul uses fear to manipulate other people, but underneath, he's actually being used by his fear all along. His ignorance of it and his unwillingness to face it leads him to act, to act entirely out of it, right? Uh, and that's what makes fear kind of scary. You know, I think we all know that fear can, in some sense, control us. It can cloud our vision and it can make us act, you know, only for, like, self-preservation. Um, and as Cam pointed out, Saul's approach of ignoring his fears, you know, isn't really that far from any, any of us. You know, if we see the Bible as that mirror, you know, we, we realize that we all have fears that go unfaced. Um, we all, you know, push our fears under the rug every now and then, and, you know, we deceive ourselves in the process. And so Saul shows us that way of dealing with fear that's not really dealing with it at all. He doesn't accept it or acknowledge it. He just ignores it. And that road has consequences for him, as we saw. Um, But fortunately, we get the luxury of contrasting Saul against David in this chapter. We get to see two very different approaches to dealing with fear, right? And David's approach, as we'll see, is one that doesn't allow fear to control him. Instead, he shows us how to use fear as a tool that brings us actually closer to God in the end. So that's what we'll be breaking down in this chapter. You know, as we look at Saul and David side by side in this situation, we want to ask ourselves a question, how are we supposed to deal with our fear? Yeah. Um, and where I want to start is kind of stepping back from our, our text a little bit for a minute um, and just asking ourselves the question of, of what deserves to be feared. You know, um, I think that's kind of the first thing that needs to be established is is what actually deserves our fear. Because before we can even think about how to deal with our fears, we have to have a firm understanding that not everything we fear is actually worth fearing. But some things are. Often we believe that, you know, things are more powerful than they are, um, but we can also underestimate the power of other things, right? Uh, And the first thing to recognize as we contrast Saul against David here is that deep down they feared very, very different things. Saul's fear was of people, but David fear, David's fear was of God. If David's fear wasn't of God, they, I think their lives would have ended up looking a lot more similar. So I want to just use this image just quickly to help us step back. So as believers, you know, this image is essentially how you know we should view our universe. You know, despite how uncomfortable it makes us feel, this is how we should see ourselves and mankind in relation to God, right? Um in a sense, we're tiny and powerless compared to him. You know, and everything we do and, and time is completely under God's control, which is something we often forget. You know, the biblical narrative from the start tells us that all of our power, um, you know, and our free will, and our intelligence, creativity, and our words, they're all tools that were given to us by God at the start. Um, and since the beginning, God has also always been in control of all things. Every moment, year, day, uh, decade, it's, it's already been seen by God, right? Um, his plans are always completed exactly the way he planned them as well. And this is exactly what we see in 1 Samuel. You know, David is part of God's plan and Saul isn't, which is why David succeeds and Saul doesn't. And hopefully this, this image just reminds us that God is the one that deserves to be feared above all things. You know, God is always sovereign. Um, and if we aren't you know, for him and, and in his plans, we end up fighting against him, you know, just as Saul was. And as we see David and Saul contrasted, we start to see that they both thought of God very differently as well. Saul's God was very small, while David's God was very big. And so as, as we attack this concept, I want to start with Saul. So, as we'll find out, the you know, we may have already seen the, the tragedy of Saul is that he slowly loses grip of this concept. Um, I think that over time his fear did begin to be misplaced. You know, if we flash back to fifth, chapter 15 quickly, you know, Saul Uh, disobeys a direct command from God. Um, He was supposed to destroy all that was left from the Amalekites after defeating them, but instead the soldiers wanted to keep the plunder for themselves. Uh, And so there in that chapter, we see that Saul disobeyed God in order to keep the people happy. And so Samuel, the prophet Samuel confronts him. And as he rebukes Saul, he tells him that that Saul was once small in his own eyes. And so as we think about that statement, I think that statement could almost be a summary of Saul's entire life, right? He started off knowing where he stood before God. He started off knowing that picture, um, and he knew how, how big God was. But once he gained power, that power started to change him. He became attached to it, and he started seeing, he started seeing the power as his own, you know, and forgetting that it was given by God. Um, you know, he, f- he forgets that it was God who gave him the power and made him king, um, and essentially, you know, as we think about this, it's, it's almost like he started seeing himself as the one to be feared. And he wanted that so badly. He wanted to be the one that was feared. Um, and in that, that process of wanting that, he lost his fear of God. And so just as he confesses to Samuel in chapter 15, Saul was afraid of his men. He feared his men because he viewed them as being able to take away his own power. And so by this point, Saul has pretty much no memory of how he actually became king in the first place. He has no trust in God to maintain his position as king either. No thought of God at all, really. So now fast forwarding to chapter 23, we see a version of Saul that's much further down that road. He's now so desperate to stay king that he'll stop at nothing to get rid of David, who is actually the greatest threat to his throne. You know, Jonathan says in verse 17 that Saul even knew that David was soon going to take the throne, right? And that's why we see him still chasing David down and still killing anyone that gets in his way. Um, and that's where Saul's ended up. His perspective of himself in relation to God is completely upside down. You know, Saul, Saul's just blinded by his fear of losing power at this point, and so he forgets God entirely. And I think that's the confusing nature of our fear, guys. And I think in Saul's mind, God's now becoming just a means to an end rather than the ultimate end. Because all Saul needs is to protect his position as king out of, out of fear. That's all he wants. He doesn't need God. He needs to protect his power. And if you look again at verse 7, when Saul sees that David and his men were exposed, what does he say? He says, God has given him into my hands. But That couldn't be farther from the truth. Just skip a little bit further down to verse 14. What does it say? It says at the end of verse 14 that God did not let David into his hands, right? And, you know, I think the author is just trying to show us there that there's... There's so much uh, confusion in Saul's mind about God. He, he's so disconnected from the reality of God's, you know, this, God's sovereignty and God's plan. You know? And because he lost his fear of God, he sees himself as holding the power. And as a result, in this book that we're reading, he spends the rest of his life in fear of other people. You know? And by this point, he's right to fear David, I think, because God's now against him and is using David, you know, which deep down Saul knows. And I'm sure we've all heard this so much that it sounds like a broken record by this point, but we do need to be careful not to ignore the message of Saul. I think we honestly can all have a bit of Saul's heart inside of us. You know, we all want power. Uh, we all want things in our lives more, uh, or we all fear things in our lives more than we fear God. Um, but we do need to heed Saul's warning. There's only one person in, in control, and if we forget it, you know, we can end up spending our lives, you know, fighting against his will as Saul does. Um, And as soon as we lose sight of God and his control, you know, we, me and Jordan were talking about this last night, but, you know, as soon as you lose God as as the one in control and and the center of your focus, everything else becomes so messy. You know, fear just clouds your vision so much faster. um, And you have no no direction and nothing to lean on at that point. Um, So that's the Saul in... (laughs) That's the oh sorry that's cool yeah so that's the, the soul that we need to be careful of in ourselves um, and again um, so now we'll look at David's example right so I think if we if we see Saul's weakness as um, you know how little he feared God how small of, of a perspective he had of God um, that's his weakness but I think David's strength is the opposite I think David's strength becomes so clear how much he he fears God. Um, you know, his strength is how big he sees God. Um, He understood God's control. You know, he saw mankind as small and powerless and unable to thwart God's plans, which is why David doesn't try to fight God's plans. You know, instead he makes every effort to be a part of them. And as I said, it might be uncomfortable to think of ourselves as small, right? You know, it can be painful to think that we have no control over God's plans, but on the flip side, it should also be pretty comforting to know that if God's in control... You know, then the people and the things that we fear are not in control. Um, you know, our fears of what people can do to us, what people will say, what people will think of us—they uh, aren't that big when you compare them to God. You know, if you're able to keep God at the centre, those those fears shrink, and that should be a comfort to us. We follow a God who's much bigger than anything we fear, and yeah, there's there's so much comfort in that thought. And God being in control doesn't mean we don't fear, though. You know, having enough faith that God is all-powerful doesn't stop us feeling fear. Um, And that's a big misconception among Christians, I think. You know, we think that having more faith will eradicate the fear in our hearts, but I don't think that's true. Um, So in our chapter, it's not like Saul's the only one with fear now. David had fear. When he's asked to save Keilah, David's being asked to go into a battle outnumbered, uh, risking not only his own life, but the lives of 600 men. And if they somehow defeat this huge Philistine army, David had an even greater fear, the one that he was already afraid of. You know, Saul and his army would be there you know, waiting for him um, and he'd be exposed and vulnerable to Saul. But David had fear and his men had fear as well. Verse 3 explicitly says they were afraid. Yep. Um, and I think it's crucial that as Christians we recognize that. You know, Christians and I personally have have been told a lot, you know, that inspiring message that we don't have to fear, that, that God will always be there to protect us. And I don't think that idea is necessarily wrong. It's true, we don't have to fear. But I think the obvious truth about fear is that we're still going to have it, right? And if we will get told that fear means we don't have enough faith, then the temptation will be to feel guilty every time that we do fear. Maybe we'll even start to ignore our fears, you know, to avoid the guilt like Saul does. But if we assume that fear is just a lack of faith and that's such a narrow perspective, guys, if David had no fear, then he would have had no growth and his example would have been useless to us. So I don't think that that's you know, necessarily the answer. I think that's a shortcut approach to fear. I think on the flip side, if we allow it to, then fear can actually become a tool that refines our faith. You know, because when, when fear hits us, rather than running away from it, you know, we can make a con- conscious decision to actually wrestle with it and to find shelter in God and trust in Him in the end. And I think as we do that, you know, over time God trains us to move our fear and trust away from people and back to God. You know, what we trust in, what we view as powerful, it moves away from mankind and the people around us and ourselves and back to the Creator. And so as we look at David's character, we can see someone who's been trained by fear and suffering. You know, time after time, God's thrown him into situations that he couldn't handle alone. The fight against Keilah right at the start was one of them. Escaping Saul at the end of the chapter was another. Time after time, God has tested David through fear and forced David to turn to God. And God saved him. God has shown him that he is the one in control. No army is bigger than God. No plan of God's can be stopped, right? By facing his fears, David's trust has moved over time from no longer trusting in himself, you know, but trusting God instead. And I think the awesome thing is that we see this side of David, you know, so clearly in his Psalms. Um... You know, Psalm 118, verse 6, it says, The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Psalm 27, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 34, verse 7 says, The angel angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. And Psalm 54 was actually written when David was hiding from Saul towards the end of the chapter. In verse 7, he says, you have delivered me from all my troubles and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. That's the kind of David we're reading about in this text, guys. You know, they're the words of someone who's been continually tested and trained by fear, allowing his trust in God to grow as a result. David knew what to fear. And in our times of fear for ourselves, we have to question whether we're fearing the right thing. You know, he, David didn't run from his fears, he faced them and he let his fears refine his faith. But there is one issue with this approach. You know, I think as, as we, you know, have this idea of fearing God above all other things, I think often it becomes a lot harder when we actually have to face our fears, right? You know, it's never actually this simple. I think when it comes to actually being in fear, you know, our vision becomes a lot more clouded, like I said before. And we don't think the same way. We can't see God as clearly. So now we need to zoom in a little bit closer on David in our text. You know, how did he actually deal with his current fear in that situation? And I think the answer pops up pretty quickly. If you guys want to look back at verses 1 to 4. So I won't read them, but just imagine you're David in this moment. So he has his own fear of two very dangerous armies. Right now he has the voice of his own fear in his head mixed with the fear, you know, the voices of the fear of all of his men. But then look at what he does in verses 2, 4, 10, and 12. It says he inquired of the Lord. David's approach to, to fear was prayer. He immediately went to God for guidance. When he was faced with fear, his reflex reaction wasn't to sit there and dwell in his thoughts. He doesn't sit and think of all the possible consequences that could happen. Yep, Jordan. <laughs> um, you know, his, his, yeah, his reflex reaction to fear was prayer. And he trusted, more, he trusted God more than he trusted himself. And I think the interesting thing to think about is when you put yourself in David's shoes, I think an interesting way to look at it is that David valued God's thoughts more than his own in that situation. He doesn't spend any unnecessary time in his own thoughts because he wants God's thoughts instead. And I think that's something that it's easy for me to stand up here and say, but is that something that I actually do? When I'm scared, do I actually want God's thoughts and God's instruction more than my own? Is that something you do? I think it's so often that we do the opposite. How often do we just sit there and allow our fear to just cloud us? How often do we let our fears stop us from seeing God's viewpoint on our situation so that we trust in ourselves instead? But David doesn't do that, right? David lets prayer be the buffer between his fear and his foolish decisions made out of fear. Um... And so, yeah, I think if we reflect on our own lives personally, um, if we think back to all the times that we did something foolish out of fear, maybe if we had prayed as soon as our fear started like David did, maybe we would would have been able to deal with our fear. Maybe we we would have been able to see our fears from God's perspective and remind ourselves that God's in control and not us. Maybe we wouldn't have done that stupid thing as a result. But as a side point, I think there's also times where we don't realize that we have that fear, right? Um, and I think this is especially true for the men. I think not just fear, but emotions in general. I think men have the extra struggle of, you know, being a lot less emotionally aware than women are. Um, and if you're a guy and you didn't know this, then you're probably proving the point. Um, but I think for all of us, I think for all of us, men and women, there's going to be times when we don't realize that there's fear in our hearts, right? Um, and it, if we didn't realize the fear was there, prayer definitely would have helped. If we were disciplined enough to pray regularly like David always does, regardless of emotion, maybe we would have noticed our fear there. Spending that time in quiet, honest, reflective prayer may have actually exposed that deeper underlying fear you know, that we couldn't see in the noise of everyday life. And once again, prayer could have stopped us from acting out of that fear. It could have stopped us from saying that insecure or jealous comment prayer would have been our safety barrier between fear and foolishness. And imagine, I found it funny to imagine if Saul had the same prayer life as David. You know, imagine if every day Saul went to God in prayer and allowed that time with God, you know, to expose what was in his heart. And not just the same amount of of time in prayer as David, just regular prayer, but, you know, not just, you know, saying the same religious words that David said. You know, the text says that David inquired of the Lord. You know, it wasn't just regular prayer. You know, inquiring of the Lord, that's David's, you know, genuinely seeking God's instruction. David didn't go to God already knowing what he wanted. He didn't say to God, This is what I want, and please can you help me get it? Or this is what I don't want, please can you help me escape it? And I think that's worth noting, actually, because I think too often that's exactly how we approach fear, right? And that's how we approach prayer. We already know what we want, and we aren't interested in being honest with God and letting God expose our selfish motives, you know, for what they really are. You know, instead, we just ask God to help us with what we already want. We're scared of something, so rather than ask for instruction, we ask God to save us from our fears. But that's not always how God operates, is it? You know, God's viewpoint is a lot bigger than ours. If we're only ever asking God for help with what we want, how can He ever give us what He wants us to have? You know, what if He's trying to use our fear to teach us? Um, and I, I love this quote from C.S. Lewis from *Me, Christianity. Um, I think it explains this concept pretty well. He says, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. I love this quote. You know, I think it's so accurate for how we see God sometimes and our relationship with God. You know, we we come into it having what we want fixed. We have a list of chores to do. You know, maybe we even have a schedule for when we want God to do them. Um, and this you know, is especially true in times of you know, our fear. Um, you know, I think we, when we're scared, we can often turn in on ourselves rather than to God. We don't, we don't look for God's plan for us. We just want to escape that fear. And so that's what we ask God for. But David doesn't take that perspective of God at all. He inquires of, of God. You know, he purely just wants to hear what God wanted he is willing to wrestle his own will against God's in order to let God's plans prevail. And God's plans were indeed greater than David could ever imagine. You know, God was making David into a king, a man that, he, that we would all read about thousands of years later and still be learning from. And what's interesting is that God takes the same pleasure in planning our lives as he did with David's. And that's important for us to think about. You know, Christ didn't just redeem us to fix a, a few of our quirks. You know, he's got plans much bigger than we can see right now. You know, and we're in places now that we didn't realize we'd be in a year ago or two years ago or 10 years ago. Um, But the question is whether we are actually seeking God's instruction like David did. You know, that's the only way we're going to get that growth. Are we seeking God's instruction or are we still trying to instruct God? And another point is that often we actually already know what God's instruction is for us. You know, we we know what we need to do in our current situation because the Bible has been explicitly clear, but we just aren't willing to submit to it. Now, I think that's all of us. And if we don't know God's instruction, then maybe we need to read more. You know, if we want to follow David's example, you know, then we, we genuinely need to be seeking out God's instruction for us and genuinely be ready to follow it. The Bible is right there waiting for us, and we have so much of God's instruction laid out before us. And so that's where, we, that's where we read it. But prayer is where we submit to it. In prayer, that's where our deepest fears and emotions should be exposed, right? You know, that's, that's where we, we wrestle with God and we submit our fears, you know, and our, and our own will in that situation to His will. You know, and Jesus obviously gives that extreme example in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus had fear. He had what He wanted in that situation, which was to escape, to have that cup taken, right? And what does He do? He submits. Um, and so that's our approach to fear. You know, we have to fear God, not people. God is, God is the one in control. Losing, so, losing sight of that can make us, you know, fear anything and everything when God's not at the center. And I think prayer is where we find our fear. It's where we expose it and wrestle with it. You know, and we should let God, God win in prayer. And, and we also have to be genuinely seeking God's instruction. We have to want His thoughts in our head and not our own in that situation. But finally, I think the text has some warnings for us as well. As we're trying to approach our fear in a godly way, you know, and trying to let fear forge our faith into something pure, there are some things we need to be aware of. Yep. Um, And so if we look back at verse 21, you know, there's something quite subtle in there. The Ziphites, they come to Saul and they tell him where David is. And what does Saul say? He says, The Lord bless you. I think it's something that sounds pretty natural, maybe coming from David or Jonathan's mouth, right? But not Saul's. The Lord bless you. You know, when Saul's entire life is in opposition to God, you know, and this this chapter involves Saul's pursuit of David being blocked by God twice in one chapter. You know, it's weird to see him saying, the Lord bless you. But why does he say that God will bless him? He says, the Lord bless you for your concern for me. (laughs) I think that's a very revealing verse, right? It shows where Saul's heart really was. You know, everything in Saul's heart was about self. And he said those religious words talking about God, you know. And and as he was saying that, we know that he really had no thought of God at all. He wasn't concerned about God's plan at all. And I think his his faith, you know, is exposed as being fake. You know, it was a, a mask covering up his true self. And that's, that's the warning for us is something to be aware of. You know, as we're trying to live lives that are moulded and shaped by God, you know, if we're trying to constantly inquire of God and seek God's instruction instead of following ourselves and our own wills, then I think that's going to be a lot harder if we're surrounded by people like Saul and fake faith. If our closest friends say religious things like Saul did, talking about God's plan for them, yet having no motivation to truly find out what God's plan is, then we need to, we need to be careful. That duplicity will only confuse us, and it will lead us away from God, not towards him. But on the other side, if you go to verse 16, we see the author put Jonathan in stark contrast to Saul, right? Jonathan doesn't give his own advice here, he doesn't lead David, you know, anywhere else. It says he helped David find strength in God. He directed David back to God. You know. He didn't direct him to himself. He reminded him of God's instruction and God's will. And that's who we need to surround ourselves with. That's the kind of help that we need when fear... Oh, Sorry, Jordan, that's the next one. Yeah, sorry. Um, but that's, that's the kind of people we need to surround ourselves with. You know, Not duplicity, but real faith. People trying to submit their own fears and their own wills to God's plan. Um, because duplicity will distract us, but friends like Jonathan will always correct us and put us back where we need to be and give us the right perspective of God. And so just as I conclude, um, I'll just get you guys to flick back just to the end of the text, the last couple of verses there. Um, as, we, as we wrap up, just read back over the last few verses for yourself. So we have this image of Saul and his army frantically chasing David, we have Saul's army on one side of a mountain with David's on the other, right? David knows that the king who will stop at nothing to kill him is literally on the other side of that one mountain. There's seemingly one big rock between David and death. I find that interesting. You know, God doesn't shut Saul down. He doesn't eliminate Saul. He could have wiped out Saul and his army ages ago. Instead, he gets David in close range to it. It makes you wonder why. But I think God puts David there because he doesn't want to remove the object of of David's fear yet. If he removes it, David doesn't grow. Instead, God wants David to be trained by that fear. And I think that's the theme underlying this entire chapter as we read it. Everyone in this chapter has fear, just like everyone in this room has fear. Our goal shouldn't be to avoid it like Saul and end up being controlled by it. Our goal should be to approach it like David and let it change and refine us. So as we recap, how do we do that? How do we let fear change us? Well, we have to make sure our fear is in the right place. You know, God is the one in control of all situations. God is the one in power and not the people around us and not ourselves. We need to make sure that we can see it that way and let that perspective change how we see our fears as we approach them. But then how do we keep that perspective, you know, in the midst of our fear when everything gets confusing and clouded? Well, that's when we pray. That's when David prayed. He let prayer remind him of God. And that's what we need to do. We need to let prayer also expose the fear that's in our hearts already rather than running away from it. We need to let prayer remind us that God is the one that we should trust. And we should go to Him genuinely seeking His instruction. So as we do this, we also need to choose our friends wisely because f- fake friends will lead us away and not towards God. So we, we made it to the end. So I'll just close in a prayer and then we'll sing <laughs> one last song. Um, Dear God, I thank you so much for this chapter. It's um, just been awesome to see Saul and David contrasted you know, so starkly, Lord, just to see um, all the dangers and warnings in Saul's life. You know, I think even for myself, day in, day out, I see Saul and myself, Lord. I see you know, a cowardly approach to every fear that I get. You know, Even as your disciple, Lord, I lose sight of the fact that you're in control. Um, and that, yeah, you're sovereign over everything I face. Every day I wake up to, you've already seen it, Lord. And I think it's so hard to remember that. So I pray for all of us in this room, Lord, that, you know, we can have the proper perspective and that we can be constantly praying with you to remind ourselves of that perspective that you're in control and we're not, that you're in control and the people around us are not, Lord. Um, And I just pray that you guide us to friends, you know, like Jonathan, Lord, that will, you know, keep us strong, keep us uh, focused on you, you know, and, and, you know, guide us to people that are genuinely, you know, seeking to follow your will, Lord, as we try to do the same. I love you so much and uh, thank you for this time. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.